Behind the headlines on WLIWFM, this is our weekly chronicle of the week's local news, talking to the award-winning journalists on the East End. I am your co-host, Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27East.com. My co-host is Bill Sutton, uh, managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good, Good morning. panel today. Good morning. We have... We have Michael Mackey, who is the host of the Long Island uh, Morning Edition. Do I have that right, Mike? On WLIWFM right here? That's right. Local host of 88.3 WLIWFM's Long Island Morning Edition. Yes, sir. There you go. Very familiar voice. And another familiar voice and a familiar face, uh, J.D. Allen. J.D., what's your title now up at WSHU? I'm the managing editor of WSHU Public Radio, and that's 89.9. Very exciting. Good to have you here, as always. And Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local and a regular on the show. Hi, Denise. Good morning. How are you? So we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, including um, the scallop die-off and maybe uh, finally get around to having a conversation about monkey puck, something we've been talking about doing. And I think I finally have some information to share. Uh, but let's start. Oh. Michael, we were talking before we went on air. Uh, the Republican primary... Uh, for the first district seat in the U.S. House of Representatives is coming up on Tuesday. And it's become kind of interesting, right? It's a three-way race. It's a, well, there are three candidates, Michelle Bond, Anthony M. Figliola, and Nicholas J. Lalota. Nicholas J. Lalota is the Suffolk County and New York State Republican Party endorsed candidate. But there is a primary and the voters will have their say on Tuesday. Michelle Bond is of particular interest because she's a cryptocurrency uh, self-made millionaire, presumably, but she certainly has a lot of money behind her. I have a Republican uh, registrant in our household, so I receive frequent mailings from uh, Republican candidates, but much more uh, from Michelle Bond. Here's a Here's a Michelle Bond defending our police, not defunding them. Michelle Bond for Congress. Michelle Bond for Congress. Long Island's defense against the radical left. She has uh, quite a bit of money behind her. A story in Friday's New York Times. A, a story in Friday's New York Times says that $9 million uh, has been invested in the upcoming primaries across the state of New York, including $1.5 million dollars to support Bond in the 1st Congressional wow. District and another $300,000 on top of that. This morning, driving here, I flipped off our station for a moment to 107.1 FM, which simulcast WABC 770 in New York, a right-wing conservative radio talk show station. And she had an ad on that, and it was very well produced and, and presented. So why is this important to us? Well, we live here, so... Whoever the Republican candidate is will be running against the Democratic uh, candidate, Bridget Fleming, and whoever wins will represent us in the U.S. House of Representatives. But it so, promises to be an even bigger story, especially if Michelle Bond wins, because that will ensure it's historic in the sense that I don't believe we have ever had, representing the first congressional district, a woman as our congressperson. So there you go. It, yeah. And that would guarantee it. And because Bridget Fleming is a Democrat, moderately to the left, and Michelle Bond is radically to the right. It promises to get uh, attention uh, across the nation, actually. So it's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an election this coming Tuesday that could be of some significance. So it will is, be it, significance. is it fair to say that Michelle Bond is sort of charted a course farther to the right of the other candidates uh, trying to seek that, that nomination? Yeah, they're all trying to uh, slip a... Uh, uh, a little bit more right ahead of the other, but they got to mm -hmm. be careful. They're in New York. They're not in in, in one of the others uh, red state. They're in a they're in a blue state. So they want to make certain that they're a viable candidate in the general election. But Michelle Bond doesn't seem to be concerned about that. She's running as a pro Trump. She's pro, she's running as a a far right. Uh, she's going to change the world and uh, make uh, Long Island great again. And I, I would just I would point out, though, that the first congressional district is not uh, a strictly blue district. New York may be a blue state, but right. the first CD flips back and forth. And I guess they call it purple. Um, well, that's an but, excellent point, Denise. You know. I mean, she could 
whoever the Republican candidate is could win the first congressional district. It's been reconfigured to some degree. So the Democrats have a little better chance this time. But no, it's it, it would be a campaign regardless of who the Republican candidate is. And, and I would say all three candidates are really, um, you know, they're trying to uh, like outright the other. Right. Like they are yes. all really, you know. Um, well, I mean, it's been a winning strategy for Lee Zeldin, J.D. I, I, mm-hmm. What I find interesting about this whole conversation is I, I know on the national level, a lot of the Democratic Party's actually been spending money in Republican primaries to try and uh, get the most right wing candidates on the ballot from the Republican side to aid their own candidates. If, uh, you know, if if we say that the candidates on that side in the first district are kind of far to the right. I'm not sure that's going to hurt them in this race. It may be, it may make it tougher for the Democrat Bridget Fleming because uh, Lee Zeldin has, has won several races in a row. This has been a pretty conservative district, at least lately. There's been, yes, some reporting that Democrats have been uh, funding uh, more uh, extreme red candidates. Um, But what I find really interesting is how Long Island funding is being divided um, between Michelle and Nick. Uh, As Mike said, Nick LaLota is the county-endorsed candidate for this position, Uh, but Michelle Bond seems to be getting funding from uh, one half of the Republican groups on Long Island, and Nick Lelota seems to be getting money from the other half. Um, so uh, the Long Island Latin majority that folks listening would remember are the, the some of the groups that led um, some of the truck rallies that zoomed through our area, um, particularly around the 2020 election. Um, they are backing Michelle Bond while the truck uh uh, tours from the 2016 days from the talk at Patriots and the other Patriot groups um, are backing Nick Lelota. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting that there seems to be two different visions for what does a Republican on Long Island mean? Um, they both seem to be backing Trump. Um, they both seem to um, support Trump policies. Um, and really it just seems to be who's really a Long Islander here. Um, uh, the Setauket Patriot group would argue that <clears throat> Michelle Bond um, is a millionaire who has had uh, a lot of time out of state. And Nick Lelota was the Suffolk County um, Republican Board of Elections chair for a number of years and before that worked on political campaigns. So um, the Setauket was a village Patriots, of Amityville trustee as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. he's definitely an, an establishment guy. You yeah. Know? He's yeah. been here. He's recognizable. Michelle Bond um, has not been recognizable up until lately because of all the mailers that we receive. Very um, recognizable recently. And she is a Miller Place High School graduate, she says. That's true. So she is a Long Islander. I think she's a formidable candidate. You mentioned, J.D., before that, uh, before we were on air, that low turnouts is usually the situation in primaries. And if that's the case, it doesn't necessarily uh, hurt her chances. If she gets her people out to vote, you could have something very significant happen here. Uh, something else that really, well, I mean, hold on. Really yeah. important there is that the expectation for low turnout is severe. I mean, this is the second New York primary that we've had in the last few months due to redistricting. And Primary elections normally receive low turnout. This is the second time New Yorkers are being asked to go out there and pick a candidate for their party. Folks don't know who can vote during a primary, which is very dangerous. You have to be registered. You have to be registered with a party in order to vote in that party's um, election. If you're a Democrat, you can't vote. You know, uh, in the upcoming primary, um, Bridget Fleming is your candidate for November. More importantly, more, if you're a no, if you're no affiliation, uh, you can't vote. I, I, I believe, though, that with the Republican primary, you can go vote in the primary and change your party affiliation at that time. You walk out as you a are public. no you, you, longer able to do that. Actually, no, that was really? changed by a, a state Supreme Supreme Court judge um, due to the redistricting. Um, that change would have had to happen a few weeks ago, I believe. Uh, ah. 
Well, that being Michael, said, another, the votes count, don't they? Yeah. Whoever Michael, votes. You, yes. You, you started to make another point, Michael. Yeah, I think that there's what the results of this will be monitored very closely. If Michelle Bond wins, she'll become a national figure. And if she wins, she'll claim it's because of her uh, association with Trump. And Trump will claim that. Now, wow. how zealously will Trump then uh, endorse her? Well, he'll he'll see. He'll check it out. If he thinks she has a chance to win, then he'll be very zealously supportive of her. Trump um, was not uh, involved in the Republican gubernatorial pr primary. He did not endorse any one candidate. However, on September 4th, he is expected to appear at a fundraiser in New Jersey for Lee Zeldin. And if Michelle Bond can uh, uh, demonstrate that being supportive uh, uh, very loudly and uh, and enthusiastically for Trump means uh, getting votes in New York and on Long Island, and then uh, we're going to see a lot more of former President Trump in our uh, in our world, both here in the first congressional district and uh, throughout the state of New York. So it's uh, the results on on Tuesday will be very interesting to see, regardless of how few people show up. I would also point out that um, this week Donald Trump Jr. endorsed Michelle Bond. Aha! Uh -huh. well. What that's worth, I'm not sure, uh, but <laughs> he did. Uh, that may be a precursor of, of things to come. I mean, Look typically yeah. in, in party primaries, which, which, yes, they typically have a low voter turnout uh, on, in both parties. But um, typically the people who turn out are the party regulars, so to speak. And the people who have the party designation, which in this case is Nick Walota, typically um, do better in the, in the party primaries. The challengers always have an uphill battle, always. And I think that that may not hold true in the same way in this race. I mean, you've got to. Politics it, haven't been typical in a few years. I mean, no. And I, I just, right? I mean, like they, they designated, they got together and designated the party bosses. Let's call it what it is. I mean, you know, Jesse Garcia and the town chair people got together and designated a guy who's a party insider. You don't get more of a party insider than a board of elections commissioner, right? JP, yeah. I mean, that's like, you know, so, I mean, yeah. You know, well, and, 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 and remember when- chief of staff of the legislature, he was, a, but, but what I, my point is, he lives in Amityville. He's got roots in Amityville. He was an Amityville village trustee. He was a little closer to the reconfigured first congressional district before the lines got thrown out by the court. Now he's like pretty way out of the district. I mean, he's making the case that Michelle Bond like came back to the district who she's lived away apparently for many years and came back to the district, rented a place to live just so she could run. And he's attacking her on on that point. But, you know, he's there. You could you could say there are a couple of carpetbaggers. And I mean, you know, the first congressional district isn't Long Island. It's the first congressional district. And it includes the East End as well as these other places that are maybe more, uh, you know, Republican, so this, you know, uh, than have been like Smithtown area and such. So I think this is going to be a really interesting race, and I think it's going to be a really interesting race for Legislator Fleming. Well, Denise, do, you, when, when I, I just, do, do do I recall that we we discovered that you don't have to actually live in the district to represent? You don't. Yeah, no, you don't. Which but is people fascinating. People don't like that. I mean, you know, people no, do not I, I, like well, that. Well, and, 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 sorry, Bill. When when the party selected Lalota, I, I think they were anticipating the original redrawn district, and and I think didn't feel like the Republican candidate would would have that much of a chance of winning because it would have been over overwhelmingly blue district. Now, yeah, of course, you always you always think you can win, but I I wonder how much that went into play. Of of them picking the 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 party regular was he a fall on your sword type of guy or you know or or did they really you know think he was going to have a, a huge campaign? I don't think there's anything about Nick Lolota that spells fall on your sword no. kind of guy. Yeah, he's the as as <laughs> right. a, a elections chair. He's argued in front of uh, the legislature in Albany. He's sent letters to Congress about. Um, his feelings on election fraud. Um, he's spent hours with me talking uh, about, um, you know, the the lack of staff that his office had had to be able to go through <clears throat> 
um, ballots that were in question both here and in Florida, where there could be overlapping uh, election fraud. And uh, he's uh, run in unsuccessful races um, more up island for state Senate and then fought them tooth and nail in the courts. Um, Nick doesn't seem like he's, the type of guy that would be like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll take this as a loss. He's in this. He's, he no. is in this. He's, he's not a straw yeah. man yeah. by any no, stretch. Absolutely well, not. Bill, before we leave the topic, um, I'm sort of interested that with the departure of Lee Zeldin creating the vacancy here, normally when we're talking about the first district race, it's the Democrats who are spending all their money in the primary and and you know using up a lot of their financial ammunition uh, and and then going into the general election sort of wounded by that the the whole story has flipped on its head this year uh, the Democrats got in line and everybody got out of the way for Bridget Fleming uh, she there were some there were some other challengers but they all stepped away and said this is going to be Bridget's uh, nomination and and so the, the the story has sort of flipped on its head this year. Yeah, absolutely. It looked like kind of a, they 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 finally got it together. I've been critical of that, you know, of, you know, for for several campaigns is 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 you go in and I mean and and last you know last time around the Democratic primary, I mean they were just killing each other in campaign ads and being critical of each other and you know and and all that and like you said it's like you said you spend all your money. And and then you know and and then there's these you know these negative images of of some of the candidates, um, you know because of because of the primary um, you know fights and and all that. So so yeah, good What's, good on good on them for for you know for for finally pulling together and, and moving in one direction here. What's been really interesting is is kind of how that's been shaped. I mean, you know, it's impossible to say you know exactly how that line uh, to to back. Uh, Bridget so um, early on in comparison had started, but when you watch, you know, I, I sit in a lot of county legislature meetings, and the moment that um, you know uh, the the wave of candidates was starting to be boiled down, you started to see how Republicans started to question her, you know, openly as she sat on uh, and county legislature meetings, both in the full legislature and also her committees, um, you know the the amount of questioning of of all of her um, uh, proposals um, became much more intense than sure. uh, before her. Um, well, because it's an opportunity to to, um, to ask really bit. tough questions. Yeah, um, you know, she's almost had to debate her candidates and her constituents. Um, you know, every couple weeks uh, that she would appear. Um, and so I wonder if that was also part of the strategy of the Democrats to say, okay, um, not only has uh, the opponents have almost chosen who their uh, challenger is going to be uh, because of the way that they, they've uh, questioned her and the way that she's been able to defend herself. Interesting stuff. I, yeah. I, I think the first district race this year is, is going to be just a, a really fascinating race to, to watch. Uh, it's always sort of, you know, we swings back and forth. And uh, this year, there's so many factors at play in the general election. It'll be really interesting to see who the Republican nominee is. Uh, we'll find that out next week uh, on Tuesday. So uh, uh, I would say I think the Democrats, I'm sorry, but, uh, Joe, but I think the Democrats finally got strategic and smart about it yeah. this year. Yeah, I think they learned from their mistakes. They've got a strong candidate. They did not have a strong candidate facing Lee Zeldin in any of the last three elections, in my opinion. I, you know, they really didn't. And, and I think that they finally got smart and said, we're going to pull together and we're going to put up one strong candidate. And Bridget can, has proven she can handle those kinds of attacks and questions and things like that. She's quick on her feet. She's a former prosecutor um, and she's smart. So I think, you know, I feel like whatever happens in the Republican um, primary on Tuesday, uh, where it's going to be an interesting race. But I, I agree with Mike that uh, Michael, that it's it has potential to be a little more off the charts than what we're used to here. Right. <laughs> it promises to be high profile yes. if it's if it's Michelle Bond. So we shall see. 
There are going to be a lot of Sorry. eyes watching that race. No yeah. question. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no worries. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We are with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Michael Mackey of right here at WLIWFM, and J.D. Allen from WSHU. Uh, Bill, we got some bad news again this week about the scallop population. Uh, you know, the, the harvesting is generally in the fall. I believe it's in November it starts. Uh, but the scientists who keep an eye on this say that we're, gonna, we're, we're in for another year. Uh, there was a healthy uh, spawning of, of the, the scallops. The population, the adult population was pretty strong um, midsummer, but they've seen a significant die off again in the waters, right? Yeah, for for the for the fourth year in a row. I mean, pre preliminary indications are we're going to see another complete die off. The the scientists um, from Cornell and Stony Brook um, were out and they tested a, a couple areas, um, Orient Harbor on the North Fork and uh, Northwest Harbor in in East Hampton uh, near Sag Harbor, and um, and saw the same indications that they saw seen for the. For the last um, three years, they're uh, they, they they're putting it down to to stressors um, due due to um, uh, warmer water um, and uh, a parasite that that's um, living in the scallops um, combined. So so when they're spawning, and that's the the bright spot here is is they are spawning. So the adult scallops are spawning, and then they're dying. So there's come some kind of stressor that's going on while they're spawning, the scientists think, um, you know, given all those three factors. Um, and we, you know, again, seen it three years in, in a row where we're just pretty much 90% of the um, adult scallop population dies before they can be harvested. Um, scientists are, are working on, so they're, so they're looking at the scallops that do survive and they've harvested some of those and they're trying, they're, they're having them, they're spawning them in, laboratories to try to see if there's something in their genetic makeup that's resistant to whatever these stressors are, the parasites in the warmer water um, and, and all that. And, and they're hoping that eventually they can kind of reseed, um, you know, the, uh, the bays, um, you know, with, with these, with these scallops that survive, but that could be years down the road. Um, and, it's pretty you know, dire. I it, mean, it, it really is. And especially for I, I guess there's no Bayman anymore that make a living entirely off scallops like there was, you know, 30, 30 years ago. But it, it, it's a hit to that community and it's a hit to, you know, to everybody out here who, who has come to enjoy the, the Peconic Bay scallops. Um, Michael, can you give us some historic, uh, you know, perspective on what the scallop industry has meant to the East End and what its loss in the last four years means? No, I don't know too much about that, but I am curious to know what is the effect on restaurants that people just order another plate or do base scallops really make up a significant portion of the revenue that's generated on the on North and South Fork restaurants? I don't know from that. You know, I've, for many, many years living out here, you took for granted that you'd have all these wonderful uh, fish foods available to you and in fact, when I'd go away, I'd say, I don't need to order fish here. I can get it back at, at home. <laughs> so well, it's, I mean, it's, uh, to, to a guy who just likes to go to a local restaurant and enjoy the uh, the, the local food, it's, it well, is you, troubling. You, you can get Nantucket-based scallops, I, I understand, but they're going to be really pricey. I mean, that's yeah. that's the effect is you're going to import, you know, seafood from areas where, where there isn't the, the stressors and um, isn't the die-off, but you know, and and same thing for there will be a harvest of some local scallops, the you know the remaining population. But you're gonna you're just gonna pay through the nose. You're gonna pay forty dollars a pound for it. You know, yeah. I, I think it bears remembering. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, just going back, you know, history. So my old my old person is coming out here, but like uh, you got to remember that this the Potomac Bay scallop population was completely decimated in the mid 1980s by right. this mysterious thing called the brown tide. Yeah. And um, I remember at that time, uh, I was on the Riverhead Town Board uh, shortly thereafter. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the Peconic Bay looked like Nestle's quick chocolate milk. Mm. I mean, it was literally, it looked like somebody poured a giant 
thing of Nestle clicking, and that was the water. Um, it was terrifying. And um, the, the scallop population was gone. And so it managed to rebound. I mean, well, you know, I think through the through the work of some of these same through, scientists, through the seeding, of, yeah, absolutely seeding, seeding the bays. So, I mean, it, there may be d different causes now, but they've got experience in and like knowing what to look for and things. And that's so to me, that's a, somewhat comforting, you know, that they they have they've got a track record and they know what to look for and how to monitor it and how to um, help improve it. So. Um, yeah, I, I'm hopeful, we, but we we did a podcast about it, and my comment on the podcast was, you know, if if the stressors are 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 coming through as you know as, as they're breeding, maybe you know maybe we can help them with some you know soft lighting and you know some you know, very white music or <laughs> seems kind of seems make like it a little less stressful, and so they can you know spawn with, without. Seems the, like they're still spawning like crazy, and and that is but, sort of the. The silver lining to all this is that well, well, that, well it, it is. So there will be adult scallops next year that that were spawned this year. But it, it, if it if it's that repetitive cycle where they spawn and then die, and then next year they spawn and then they die, I, I guess. I mean, again, the bright the bright side is is the population continues, but there's no harvesting at that point. There's no benefit um, to us, and then and then you're going to have one year where something else comes into play some fourth stressor or whatever and and they don't spawn and you know and it's going to be you know 20 years 10 years ago all over again yeah that's i wanted to bring jd in because jd you've done a lot of reporting uh about climate change and the way we see that impact locally this is certainly an example of that because uh the as i understand it the the primary cause of the mortality is this parasite, but it's that the the scallops are weakened by all of the other conditions that they face. It's just too much of an uphill climb. Sure, I mean, so the way to think about it is what Denise was describing with the brown tide, right? That was the, the short-term um, human-influenced pollution, right? It, it, that's the nitrogen um, pollution, the carbon uh, pollution that we were seeing, and we've started to remediate with those nitrogen filtering uh, septic systems, a better understanding of our sewer systems, how to filtration of water, and our wastewater, which is more important, and that has rolled back, at least in some areas, especially along the Peconic Bay and, and uh, on the, the uh, North Shore harbors, the, the algal blooms that we see that are really decimating um, to all types of wildlife, but especially, you know, our shellfish. Um, and that um, is enhanced by warming waters due to climate change. What we're seeing now are kind of like the long-term impacts of our human influence. Um, and so it is the, the, the really, really big picture um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's the the really big seismic things that we need to change in our society uh, to um, prevent warming waters from getting much warmer, because then we are going to see the things that come with it, like new predators. The parasite is a new predator. The cow nose ray that comes up from the Maryland area is a new predator. Uh, to the shellfish that we see up here that they have not had to fend off before and that there are no natural predators to eat their predator. Um, and so that alongside um, just a, a more uncomfortable aquatic system, the, the, the temperature of the water increasing, we've created basically a warming bathtub that they just want to get out of. And um, unless we make bigger, um, you know, uh, unless we make, unless we reduce our contributions to climate change on a much larger scale, we're going to have to help these scallops figure out how to deal with their new bullies, basically. And there are people that are doing it. I mean, you have the East, um, East Hampton Hatchery, for instance, you know, Barley's out there and he's got tanks full of um, scallop and oyster and clam spawn. And he's trying to figure out the, the best solutions to, um, to start those seeding processes. And they happen every year 
with the new batch, but um, you know, there are still bullies in those waters. It's almost like the scallops or the canary in the coal mine. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of canaries a, that yeah. have been screaming yeah. for years. This is just one that tastes delicious that's on our plate. <laughs> we are gonna we are going to miss them. We take our hats off. Uh, it's a shame because that's one of the great things about fall on the East End is the bay scallop harvest. So yeah. knock on wood, hopefully it'll be back um, one of these years soon. A lot of a lot of folks working hard on trying to make that happen. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. Our panelists are Michael Mackey of WLIW, uh, J.D. Allen of WSHU, and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. So I wanted to take a couple of... Oh, yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to say real quick, but I didn't want to interrupt your, 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 your mark there. There are things that people can do to help the shellfish in the water. There's volunteer that you can do to help build up their um, their habitats. Um, the groups like the Cornell Cooperative and friends of all of the different bays and aquatic systems, they have seagrass plantings. You can, if you are finished um, restaurant owners or people, um, if you are finished with, uh, uh, you know, your most recent bag of, uh, of clams or, or scallops, you can donate back the shells and those shells can be put to good use at hatcheries um, and, and other systems that try to get these back. And in terms of those folks that still make a living um, off of uh, the, you know, the baymen who still make a living off of this, um, there are community supported agriculture plans that you can um, put some proceeds towards their next planting and then you get a, a piece of whatever crop comes out in the next year. It might be a little bit more of a bust than a bang considering you know all the predators but um you're kind of investing in your future that way it's done wonders for for other shellfish um certainly the the oyster populations um have been boosted significantly and we're starting to see some benefits to that um shinnecock bay uh seems to be a little bit healthier than it was before and I think to a large degree, that has to do with a lot of the shellfish programs that have been out there. So, yeah, good stuff. I, I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about monkeypox. Um, we've uh, we've sort of shied away from the topic, I think, because none of us are experts on it. And um, I'm not sure any of us are real comfortable talking, uh, you know, in detail of, uh, about the illness. But I did um, have a chance this week to do a Q&A with Dr. Susan Donnellan, who is the infectious disease expert at uh, Stony Brook. And so, you know, I got a little bit of information. I think it's really important to talk about this. It's a tough subject for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'll tell you that New York State is, is the leading state in the United States for the number of cases. And there's more than 2,500 confirmed cases in the state. And as of the middle of, of August, there were 35 in Suffolk County, and there's reason to think those numbers are going to go up fairly sharply because they've been going up fairly sharply in a lot of places. What complicates this is about 90% of the cases have involved the LGBTQ community, particularly men having sex with men. That makes this a complicated conversation because, as Dr. Donnellan said, we don't want to stigmatize this in any way. And she said it's very important to understand that monkeypox is not a sexually transmitted disease per se. It's a disease that's transmitted from intimate contact. But intimate contact is something you have on a daily basis with people in your family as well. So this is a disease that has the potential to spread to a larger population without um you know, without without people taking precautions and without people who are in the at risk community right now uh, getting the vaccine. And, and for, for the moment, um, I know that the uh, they started offering the monkey pox, pox vaccine at the Edie Windsor um, Healthcare Center in Hampton Bays, which is affiliated with Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. And they've given out a nearly a thousand first doses. It's actually a, a a vaccine that requires two doses, sort of like the COVID vaccine. Um, they had started administering uh, second doses as well, but it's been tough. There's not a lot of vaccine out there, and that's why they're sort of focusing on the at-risk communities there. But the, you know, what I want to talk about is I, I feel like 
nationally and, and regionally, this isn't a big topic of conversation. I think we're all sort of exhausted from, from the COVID pandemic, but it can be dangerous to not at least have a conversation about this. This is, this is, uh, this is another threat to public health um, that, that we need to take seriously. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure, is anybody comfortable talking about this? So sure. it's a vaccine, yeah, vaccine distribution um, is, uh, I, I, I like to think of my role as a journalist as like news you can use, right? So mm -hmm. uh, the way to, to be safe in this situation is that you, if you are an eligible uh, New Yorker looking to get a vaccine, um, the problem for them is that there are not a whole lot of vaccines right. and not, there are not a whole lot of places where you can receive that vaccine. Um, and that is a multi-step problem um, of why that's the case. There's only one major pharmaceutical company that makes the vaccine globally. Um, they're trying to reproduce that so that way other drug companies across the globe can produce them. That could increase the federal government's purchasing of these vaccines. That means the distribution to the states. Uh, good news, bad news is that New York is like the has the most cases of this, so we get the most vaccines. That's kind of how that works. Um, but as they get spread uh, throughout the state, especially outside of New York City, where that is the most, um, Suffolk County is trailing right behind that um, as having the most monkeypox cases. And mm -hmm. when you have um, only a handful of clinics, um, it, it could be really frustrating if you're living uh, in eastern Long Island and you're looking for a vaccine that there's might only be one place where you can uh, find an appointment. It might be several weeks away. Um, and if not, you're going to have to travel um, quite a long time to get that first vaccine. And that means you have to do it again in another two weeks to go get your second dose. Four, four weeks, actually. It's uh, 28, weeks. 28 yeah, days for the second dose, yeah. Uh, sorry, COVID on the brain, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's a lot to ask for somebody who might be questioning, am I eligible and is this something I need? Um, and so we haven't made the process easy to protect ourselves. No, I um, think that's all very true. And, and, and it's, you know, for now, I think the important thing for the general population is not everybody needs the vaccine. They, because the vaccine is in such limited supply, there are actually two vaccines, but, um, and they're trying to work on ways maybe to, to administer the vaccines in a different manner so they can spread it out a little more. But for now, the vaccine really needs to go to at-risk populations. And that at the moment is essentially um, the LGBTQ plus community. So, um, but, but, but if you have gonna, a family number, that's going to spread outside that community. Yeah. I, I would think fairly soon. So I think the the sooner they can get more vaccines produced, the better. I think part of the issue is, you know, I, I think sure we're we're COVID weary and all that, but <clears throat> I don't want to minimize this disease. It sounds really horrible to the people that that have it. It's very painful, um, and and you've got to isolate for four weeks and 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 all that but you're you, you know thank thank goodness nobody's dying from this but i, I yeah think, that but i, that but, I, I but, but i think that affects the general public's perception as well it's like why should i care about it if we're not seeing i mean we just went through a pandemic where we lost so many lives and so many you know people that that this almost seems minimalized um, in, in comparison to that. And it's not, it's horrible. And we should, we should, we should, we really need to to stop the spread um, as best we can, because it, it is going it, to, it's going to spread. I mean, we, we saw that with COVID. It started out with slow numbers like this and then quickly, you know, quickly moved on. One of the differences though, that's important to, to make is that you really do need intimate contact um, of the sort that, but not sexual, um, not sexual, not necessarily contact. just sexual contact. I think it's been largely spread by sexual contact uh, at this point. But um, Dr. Donald well, made int point. intimacy that comes along with sexual content. I mean, let, let let's not well, for let's instance, not, let's you, not muddy that. I mean, it, it's not the sex part that spreads it. It's the intimacy that that you have before, during, and after sex. Certainly, but it also, if you have a family member in the house 
who who is infected with monkeypox, you can get the disease from uh, you know uh, bedclothes. And it, well, I mean, even even from bedclothes, and it actually can survive on inanimate surfaces in a way that we've found that COVID doesn't. And it's important to stress here that while monkeypox is very contagious, it's not widely contagious. You're not going to catch it in public, you know, by being, it's not like COVID. COVID was very, you know, is a very contagious disease and you can catch it in a crowded room. You're not going to catch monkeypox in a crowded room. So we're not, we're not, uh, people need to just be aware. There's a lot of information out there on the CDC websites, on some of the local websites. And I think it's the vaccines are part of the battle here, but I think it's also an information battle. So I just want to get that out to people. Uh, This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Joe Shaw, um, my co-host is Bill Sutton with the Express News Group. Our panelists are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Michael Mackey, of WLIW and J.D. Allen of WSHU. Um, Denise, so Riverhead. So we were talking about this. Bill and I actually had a conversation uh, with some friends just last night, and we were talking about Riverhead as an example of a town that is, is really developing, but at least from the outside, developing in a positive way. I think it's, I think it's really becoming transformative already for for Riverhead, but there's a lot of proposals. Particularly with Main Street and Main Street redevelopment, I think. Yeah. You know, we were talking but there's a there's that. a lot of proposals on the table right now in Riverhead, right? And there's there's some conversation about whether uh trying to deal with them individually might not be the best strategy. Um well I mean it yeah. So Riverhead's got a number of challenges uh, right now as it's um trying to cope with reviewing and understanding and approving the various developments. And um, one of them is that we have a way out of date comprehensive plan. It was adopted in 2003. Um, It, um, you know, doesn't reflect modern reality. (laughs) Um, I mean, the, the plan document doesn't even have the words renewable energy or solar or anything like that in it. Um, and yet uh, Riverhead has uh, rapidly become kind of the solar capital uh, of the East End with uh, hundreds of acres in uh, solar arrays. Uh, and now uh, the town is uh, facing um, what would appear to be the be- well, the beginning of uh, a number of uh, applications for these battery storage facilities that typically go along with uh, the renewable energy. Um, and that's uh, kind of like an array, if you will, of uh, giant uh, batteries that will hold the battery in it, will hold in the battery the energy produced by the renewables or by any source, really, but they go along with the renewables a lot. And to deploy that energy when it's needed when energy production from these renewable energy facilities might not be happening at a level uh, high enough to uh, feed the grid. Um, so we are now uh, the uh, recipient, we Riverhead, is of, of an application to build uh, one of the largest uh, battery energy storage facilities um, in the region. The, the first large, you know, utility scale facility on uh, Long Island and I mean, in Suffolk County. Um, And, um, you know, the town, frankly, is just ill-equipped to handle um, these massive applications. There are all these warehouse applications that are coming in, things like, you know, 641,000 square feet of warehouse space for uh, along with, you know, up the road of 412,000 square foot proposal. And, you know, there's just a lot of these things going on. And we don't have a plan that takes any of this stuff into account. Um, You know, for example, when the master plan was adopted, the entire um, other than the industrial core at the former Grumman site in Calverton, that whole site was zoned for, um, believe it or not, recreational uses um, and um, not industry. So, the only industry that was contemplated at the FCAL site was what was already there, the buildings and such. And um, the town has since 
rezoned the Epcal site, the rest of it, as industrial land. And so now, now there's like, you know, 1,644 acres of vacant industrially zoned land inside the fence, as they say, of the former Grumman site, surrounded by, I don't know the total number of acres, but hundreds, if not thousands of acres of industrially zoned land around it, which kind of made sense when Grumman was inside the, that fence. But now that it's, you know, so nothing, you know, we have not as a town, as a community addressed this. And uh, the town hired um, a consulting firm in 2019 to update the master plan. And it basically did not make much progress between COVID or whatever happened. I mean, there's a lot of speculation, but um, they terminated their contract with that company and they're starting essentially uh, from scratch, more or less. Uh, they interviewed, uh, they, they have like three finalists and, you know, from consulting firms and they're starting again. So uh, meanwhile, the beat goes on. And so we have all these applications coming in and um, a town board and town bodies like the planning board that don't have much appetite for really doing the deep dive that is not only, you know, objectively required, but is actually required by law. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. there, there is that thing called the law that said, you know, the State Environmental Quality Review Act. and um, it requires that you take a look at cumulative impacts of developments that are in the same region, the same kind of development, the same kind of impacts. You can't just segment them and look at them, you know, through, um, you know, blind, put the blinders on. And we're just going to look at the impacts of this. And then next time we're going to look at the impacts of that. And, you know, you got to add them up. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's um, what a comprehensive plan, a master plan does, right? It gives you uh, sort of a yeah. big picture and gives you some guidance. And, and, you know, do they, I mean, do they, though, traditionally and, and again, devil's advocate, I mean, we see these master plans all the time and they come out and, and then it feels like they, they sit on a shelf and they get dusty and and and, and nobody nobody looks at them. Is, is the answer maybe better, as Denise said, with with CICRA and part of that CICRA process and the environmental reviews that you do to just look at? look at, at everything you know together and you know as 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 one in the future of, of different developments and you know and i think we're, we're seeing some of that on on the on the south shore too where where you've got all these different projects and and they you know they stand alone and nobody looks at them um, the, the old the old line is there's never been a traffic study that you know every every project no no impact on traffic there's never right. an impact on traffic but you know the, yeah. the master plan is supposed to exist so that way when when administrations change there's still a a vision that is carried out between that that's a, a local policy like um uh, uh for continuous viewpoints over time um and so that married with the state environmental law um, is supposed to inform, okay, we have a vision for, we know that there's going to be an industrial future in this area. Um, it doesn't matter if I'm sitting in this chair as a planning board director or somebody else's, um, you know, we need to uh, take a look at this um, and and how we can plan for this area to, you know, meet our local vision as well as state law. In theory, that's how it's supposed to work. Right. Um, in, oftentimes a per- in a perfect they, world. <laughs> oftentimes, they do. It feels like they do sit on the shelf. Um, and well, I think you see visions change too. I mean, you're you're talking about so there's one vision and it's supposed to be passed down and, and carried over into new and different administrations. But I think you see so often new administrations well, come in and they may not share that same vision that, that but that also circumstances right. change though. Right. I mean, you know, I you know, twenty two years ago in the last or twenty years ago when the last master plan was adopted in Riverhead, there was no you know, there was no Amazon. People were not getting everything delivered to their doorstep. I mean, things, circumstances change. And that's why state law also says you got to update these things at least every 10 years. Yeah. We're 10 years behind, out of the box. And plans can and should change, and you you should be open to change plans. I mean, I I think that's 
um, the the way that it's intended to go. But I think the reaction that's often had is that we're going to put it on the shelf and not look at it again. Or, you know, long-term plans, they never shape out right. So let's just not do them. Yeah. And then that gets really dangerous because that's when the blinders, as Denise says, they go on and you start to look at things in piecemeal and uh, you wonder how you got, you know, stuck with a patchwork of... Uh, of awkwardness. Well, it's, it's also not a legal option. And then you end up being, as Riverhead has, being b- backed into a corner of being reactionary to everything, yeah. you know? And when you have public officials, whether because of political consequences or otherwise, who who see, like, they their job is not planning. They're not directing planning. They're directing development, you know? They're shepherding development applications and they're reacting to development applications. And that just is not a good spot to be in as a community. And then on top of it all, we've got, um, you know, all of these things are going to be developed without any tax base increase for at least 10 years because they're giving, you know, all of these folks are looking for and generally getting, um, you know, property tax abatements. Like over a period of 10 years where their property taxes are phased in. So, And what's really interesting about that through the industrial development agency kind of perspective is if you look at the most recent reporting uh, auditing from the state controller's office about about how these local IDAs, um, how effective they are, um, he's finding that you know, they're very effective at giving out tax exemptions, but the goal in bringing in jobs, that number is reducing year after year. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the most recent reporting goes to 2020, you know, that's uh, two years um, back. But um, uh, on Long Island, the agencies gave out $210 million in tax exemptions, um, and that generated a little over 40,000 jobs. When you break that down, it's only about $5,000 in tax exemptions per job. That number is supposed to be way different. Um, Way more jobs are supposed to be produced based on the amount of um, tax breaks that are given. Um, And so when you also have a facility like a storage um, that might not have a lot of um, uh, job creation, I'm sure you need people to manage the site and, you know, technicians and contractors and all that kind of stuff. But if you're not producing jobs, that's not what IDAs were designed for. They're designed to help spur economic growth through job creation. You know, this conversation Mm -hmm. about the need for plans uh, for development echoes all over East End to the in in villages and towns. I know Southampton Village right now is in the midst of doing a new master plan. Uh, in Sag Harbor, they're talking about a potential series of major projects up there that they'd like to see taken as a group, and that'll probably involve something similar. So we're out of time. Uh, we, we covered a lot of ground this week, and it was a really uh, really interesting conversation. I thought so. Uh, my thanks. To our panelists, Michael Mackey from right here at WLIW, who's going to get off the air with us and go right on the air uh, himself. So thanks for taking the time, Mike. Thank you very Uh, much, Paul. J.D. Allen from uh, WSHU. Thank you, J.D. And Denise Civiletti uh, from Riverhead Local. Thank you, Denise. Thank you, Joe. And thank you to my co-host, Bill Sutton. We will be back next week uh, with Bond Headlines. Thanks, Bill. 